uh, why Marama resident says that driving on the beach is, quote, incredibly disruptive, aggressive, frightening. A drop-in day is being held by the Hastings District Council to get an idea of how the public is feeling about the issue. At the moment, it is illegal to drive over 20 kilometres per hour and driving in front of the surf club at certain times also banned. With us is Sophie Sears, Waimarama resident and member of the Hawke's Bay Regional Council. Quite the issue in that part of the area, as well as anywhere else where driving on the beach comes up. Sophie, welcome. Uh, kia ora, thanks. What's, what's been your experience of people driving on the beach? Uh, yeah, well, they definitely do it. <laughs> and they definitely do it over 20 k's an hour as well, Wallace. Uh, and, uh, so it is, it is definitely over 20 k's. It's not just uh, a little bit of a uh, fast walk. It's actually quite fast. Little little tootle down the beach yeah. sometimes. There's lo- lots of people in the community that pot down on their side-by-sides to, to get down to the northern end of the beach, pop their kontiki out, take the kids down. And then there's also a whole group that come with their dirt bikes or their utes to, to have, a, um, have a blat on the beach, do donuts, have fun. I mean, you know, it is fun, that's for sure. Well, that's the problem, oh, and that's the, that's the issue. It is fun. And I was talking to a person, actually, I happened to be talking about, he said, what are you talking about? He goes, driving on the beach. He says, that's what I do. I said, why did you do it? Because he said, it's absolute fun. It's freedom. I love doing it. And yeah. these hoons are, are making a bad name for the people like me who do driving responsibly. What would you say to him? Yeah, that's the problem. I mean, the, the, at a really simple level, this is a whole conflict between the, the sunbather and the, and the person who wants to use the beach as a road, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that, that's the option. Do we do we ban sunbathers? I mean, that could be one way we could do it if we think that the road user is more important on the beach. So, yeah, I, I get both sides of the story. Alexia? Yeah, I don't get both sides of the story. I mean, Miruai Beach, you know, you're not supposed to act like a hoon. I don't think that's the actual law. But, you know, they wreck the sand dunes. They take absolutely no notice of who else might be trying to co-use but, the beach. But you just rope off the sand dunes. That's all you do. Oh, yeah, really, right. And you can drive a four-wheel drive right through those things. It's just, you know, they're just ridiculous. They're not there to, uh, you know, carefully obey the road rules. They're there to have a really good time. Um, You know, and a a boy died at Rothsey Bay doing this a few years back. On That's on the North Shore side of things. It's not completely, I mean, it is a lot of fun, but it's not completely without its dangers. I just think in areas where there are now too many people, you just you've got to sort of cut it off. You've got to say, "I'm sorry, but the population um, proportions have swung in the favour of the walkers and the dog walkers." Stay are you are you advocating just a, uh, an an overall ban? Yes, Chris. I'm with her on this one. I'm with Alexia. Uh, we lived in Hawke's Bay a number of years and used to go to Waimara most weekends. Oh, so you know the place? Yeah, really well. And in fact, I was going to ask Sophie if the problems got worse because when we'd go there with our little kids and with our dogs, we always had to look out for the speeding cars. The reality was most people, 95%, stuck to the 20Ks. Most of them were going down there in four-wheelers to go fishing, and they were fine. But it was the 5%. Who weren't, and unfortunately, five percent is quite a big number on a busy beach. So, is this my question? Then, is this there? Is has this been a bit of a long-running issue, Sophie, at Waimarama Beach? Well, it's a it's a growing problem. I mean, I've lived here twenty-five years, and certainly, population has grown oh. hugely. Visitors have grown hugely. Ute, I mean, many more people own four-wheel drive. Utes, lots of people own motorbikes, two-wheel and four-wheel. 
and it, it's increased, yeah, year on year on year. And you're absolutely right, um, Chris. It's it's sort of dodging cars now on the beach, and the the amenity value for the walker or the pedestrian or the sunbather is certainly declining. There's no no two ways about that. Okay, so what are some of the solutions being proposed? Well, I mean, the big conflict is is how on earth do you close a beach off to the type of activity that that doesn't work for 90% of the people um, while allowing the community who who feel a really strong right to be able to act responsibly and, and pot down the beach to fish, as we've talked about. How on earth do you create a system in which that can that can work. And there's been lots of suggestions around permits and gates and all sorts of things, but how that could actually happen in, in practice is a different, it's a different story. So, the, I, you know, I really commend Hastings District Council for opening up this drop-in day. A lot of people in the community feel quite challenged by these sort of town hall. Right, sort of yes, things. yeah. Yeah, the drop-in day is an opportunity for people to come and talk about what's happening for them, what they like to do on the beach. I mean, I really encourage people to perhaps come open-minded and with questions rather than sort of statements of um, of what they think is the right thing because if you, if you can't understand all sides of the argument or come to different ways in which you can contribute to solutions, then we kind of end up at a stalemate. So good on Hastings District Council. You can come down and talk about how you use the beach, how you'd like to use the beach, maybe how you can contribute even to a solution. That would be a, a, a good start. Um, the scientist, our head scientist um, from Hawke's Bay Regional Council, and I'm not speaking on behalf of Hawke's Bay Regional Council, Wallace, just get that in there early. I've yeah. been to the ombudsman, <laughs> speaking as a resident. Um, Anna Mandras-Smith, she'll be down there. Uh, you couldn't meet anyone who knows more about our marine environment. I've asked her to come and talk about dune ecology and beach ecology, pippy beds, um, sediment down the rivers, the power rahui that we have here at the moment. Really try and open people's minds to all the, uh, the kind of issues around our marine environment and Very how good. we're using it and how we're connecting. Yeah. Nice to have you on, Sophie. All the best for the, uh, for the drop-in day and uh, uh, let us know how the feedback was. That's uh, Sophie Sears, Waimarama resident and member of the Hawke's Bay Regional Council. If you live near the area, Waimarama, uh, are the... Are the, are the, the the Utes. Are the Utes on the beaches, are they causing a problem for you? Or actually, are you one of the drivers who go, I am not going to let this lie, and I'm strong against Alexia's idea of a ban uh, on uh, riding on the beach? You know, it was cars on the beach that wiped out some dofferals not very long ago. You know, and you can't. The trouble is, you can't just say, "Oh, oh yes, okay." Well, the people who go on the beaches will be these responsible people who will, um, you know, just literally, as Sophie was saying, just drive down the beach to go fishing. But once you open it up, there's so much more you open it up to, and there just comes a point. I think we have to, you know, I'm, as a pedestrian, sick of being at the bottom of the food chain when it comes to cars and things. I mean, what, about right. world, what about the world's fastest Indian, Bert Munro? He drove his bike on the beach. He became a legend by driving on the beach. What about people like that? Well, there's always room for that, I suppose. And, and the, beach, the beach was probably a bit quieter than one hour and hour. That's the other issue. It's a much busier beach another, than that. Another one here says, uh, another, just another angle on smoking. Good job on smoke-free changes. I've supported all of them were forced on us. It broke up community clubs. It broke up New Zealand culture. It's robbery, hypocrisy, punitive 
cancel culture abusive and worse, the anti-smoking prejudice causes surgery to to be denied to us smokers. As a smoker, I am sick of subsidizing you lot when I can't get the help I need that would let me live longer. Good on you. So I, I can't see the logic in it, but... Yep. Yeah. There you go. That's from Ian. So <laughs> thank you, Ian, for your point there. Nice one. All right. So the panel poll, the snap panel poll, uh, I asked whether or not you supported the idea, because it's going to come up uh, in this term, the move to a four-year parliamentary term. Uh, that's what um, uh, Chris Luxon wants to do with the support of National NAC. 66% of you said yes to four years. Um, so that's, there, there it is. That's a big turnaround, Wallace. In 1990, yeah. 69% of New Zealanders said no. There you so go. there's been a big shift in, in sentiment, if that's the case. But that's wouldn't a, you hold that referendum and then say it won't happen until the next term, so they're like, it won't benefit me personally? You would think that, wouldn't you? So there'd need to be some kind of period before it came into place. Yes, uh, 66% uh, and no to four years at 34%. The panel, RNZ National. Now, turning our attention to Gore briefly, uh, where all is still not well in local government. They might be the country music capital. They might have the big brown trout at the entrance. It might be where the nation's porridge once came from. But politics, not well. In the past year, internal ructions have led to the mayor and the chief executive not speaking, two petitions calling for the chief executive to leave not being tabled, votes of no confidence, resignations and requisitions. One expert has been watching it very closely unfold from across the Tasman, that is Dr Andy Asquith at the Centre for Local Government at the University of Technology in Sydney. Dr Asquith, welcome. Good afternoon, Wallace. How are you doing? Very well. Have you ever come across a local government issue the likes of what we are seeing right now happening in Gore? Uh, in a word, no. It's um, it's unique. It's on one hand, it's entertaining. On the other hand, it's very sad. Yeah. You have said that the Gore District Council is so fixated on looking internally that it doesn't appear to realise what it appears to be to the outside world. Can you explain that a bit? Yeah, sure. The, the the staff and the council seem to be fixated in what's going on with the internal machinations, and while their attention is there, um, I suspect that services aren't being delivered as they ought to be. And over and above that, you know, the, the good people have got look at their council and wonder what the heck's going on, which doesn't bode well for the levels of of connectivity between the council and the citizens. Um, the local government it should be about local people and local services. And I'm afraid in goal what we have is we have a council that's fixated on internal machinations at the expense of the community. It's quite an extraordinary story, isn't it, Chris? It's been festering for so long now, and we thought that uh, it might have come to an end when they all got on the table and, uh, you know, they apologised to each other. But it's still going. It's still going on. What's your take on this? Well, well, maybe it's the strongest argument for three-year terms, because the argument would be that actually they only have to wait another 12, 18 Mm -hmm. months and there'll be another election and they can either turf out the mayor or whatever. But it is a tragedy in the sense of 
what's not being discussed, what's not happening in Gore as a consequence of this, this focus on themselves. And the reality is it's a train wreck. The moment you've got uh, a mayor and a CEO not talking to each other, the moment you've got petitions, the moment you've got votes of no confidence, this can only end one way. And you wonder what the humane thing to do is. I guess my yeah. question to Andy is, what is the humane thing to do? Do they just have to wait it out for another 18 months to the next election? Or is there something that can be mm-hmm. done? Well, I've said all along that I think the local government minister should send in the commissioners because this can't be allowed to continue because whatever those same people around the council table and in the in the officer positions, then this will go on and on and on. And the council doesn't seem able to realise that it needs to move on. So I think external intervention has got to happen. Are we sure Gore is real? Is this not... Like a, a Truman Show thing where people just made this up for our benefit because well, we're quite mad. What, what we've got in Gore is all the, the small petty faults in the local government system across many councils, for some perverse reason, all seem to be coming out of the woodwork in Gore. And they're showcasing them. It feels, like a, yeah, it feels like a Netflix series, doesn't it? Yeah. I want to ask you, you know, Andy, um, you know, in terms of you, you make the point quite strongly in the piece that you feel that, you know, at the end of all this is the ratepayers, the people who are, or citizens of Gore who are actually at the end of this are not really getting a uh, what you feel is a decent look in. What is an example of a council that is serving its citizens well? I think one you cite is Hastings. Yeah, Hastings has done a fantastic job recently reducing homelessness. And it's an example of a council that can't do everything by itself, but has quite clearly sat down with third-party providers, other parts of the public sector, NGOs, and and come up with a, a very good solution to a, what is a national problem. Um, and there are other councils where you have chief executives and mayors that work in councils that work very well together and are doing some fantastic things in New Zealand. The problem is they're always clouded out by the examples of Gore. <laughs> Andy, though, is this a, a case of it's the necessary price of democracy? The good people of Gore voted for the young mayor. It was a very close election. I think it was a matter of three or four votes in it. But they, they live with the consequence of their vote. Is there a, a sense in which we just have to let democracy roll? You're, you're advocating that we put in a commissioner, which... Um, is quite a major move. Well, I appreciate that a commissioner is incredibly undemocratic, but when you look at, at places like Gore that use first-past-the-post as an electoral system, then in my view, the whole idea of democracy is debatable. First-past-the-post is inherently undemocratic. I mean, one of the problems is, isn't it, when you vote for a mayor and councillors, the mayor is on a, you know, like it's like a presidential pedestal in a way. It's not like the government where the head of that party is the prime minister. And and people don't vote for that mayor for the right reasons, I feel, quite often. I think the best yeah. mayor, the most effective mayor, is someone who can get other people to work with them. And Kath Tizard was a great example of this. She pushed through so many things because she could talk those guys 
they were old men, most of them, into working together right. to like build the RTS Centre and hold the Commonwealth Games and things like that. People often say, oh, Robbie, 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 you know, we should have done what Robbie said. Robbie could never get his council to agree to all this, and that's why he wasn't yeah. as good a mayor as everyone thinks. Interesting thoughts there, Alexia. Hey, we've got to move on, uh, Andy, but kia ora, uh, as always, for your time there. That's Dr. Asquith there on local governance. He, he's calling the Gore Council a sad farce. Your thoughts on that if you live there. Uh, but finally, to this, uh, with the panel, uh, uh, in National. And by the way, uh, if you can't catch the panel live, we are on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, or on the RNZ app. The colour red is blooming everywhere this time of year. Putakawa, strawberries, cherries, if lucky. Now, a food research scientist is encouraging us to eat more red fruit and vegetables. Why? Well, this is written up in a piece on Newsroom. I thought, oh, this is interesting. This, uh, uh, well, let's bring in Professor Andrew Allen, uh, who is at Plant and Food Research. He's a scientist there at the University of Auckland. Professor Allen, welcome to the program. Kia ora, Wallace. Kia ora, panel. Hi. Uh, Andrew, I know personally that I just love a good red capsicum. That's my go-to. Yep. Do people buy fruit or vegetables based on colour? Yes, uh, they, they buy with their eyes. We, unless, unfortunately, they're colourblind, which is, we always have to admit that red-green colourblind is one of the most common conditions. But effectively, they're, they're purchasing something because it looks great. And the other, the other thing to remember is they'll buy it again next weekend when they go back to the supermarket based on a really good experience. So it's got to deliver everything. But the first thing off, off the rack, the first cab off the rack, is, is what does it look like? And, yeah. and red... The, the red compounds in our fruit and veg are good for us. They attract us to buy them, and that's a good thing. Did you know this, Alexia? I didn't know this. I thought this is all sort of uh, influencer stuff, but this is actual uh, information that red, uh, they have specific benefits. Well, isn't this why when, you know, we used to have this Eat Your Greens program and then someone said, no, it should be Eat Your Colours? Eat Your Colours, exactly. Five mm. plus a day. Uh, five portions of fruit and vegetables a day if you can, if you can hopefully afford it. And this time of year, prices are going down because it's in season. Um, and I just encourage everyone to, to get into it. We're, we're very lucky that our festive season is over the, over the growth season of, of, of some of our major crops. Well, 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 eat your coloureds. That I didn't know. Or did I see it? Someone, my producer said, uh, eat your rainbow fruit yep. or whatever it was. Yes. Yeah. Andrew, remind us what, what each colour does um, in terms of health benefits. Well, um, if, if for the plant, they're all essential, of course, um, but they're offering us a gift. If, if it's a fruit, they, they want us to spread their seeds. So they're, they're offering us a, a nutritional gift. And the anthocyanins that colour red are, are antioxidants. They, they, they reduce inflammation in a number of conditions. There's the um, carotenoids, which are in, in Wallace's capsicum, which are vitamin A, which is essential. If you don't have that, then uh, you start to get quite sick. Chlorophyll carries a, a benefit to it. It carries iron and magnesium. Um, so it, it really is a gift of nutrition that, that we receive um, uh, when we purchase and then repurchase um, some, of those, some of those products. And red, Professor Allen, has specific benefits. Yep, yep. Uh, we've done... Uh, trials using um, uh, mouse models to show that um, a, a bright red apple is better for you than a than an apple that has only white flesh and, and little anthocyanin. So there are specific benefits from the red 
compounds. Well, Alexia, of all the years of the detail, I bet you didn't know that. Well, I had some inkling. I do work for Newsroom. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, true. Okay. Probably not a good time to buy Granny Smith. And text cost 20 cents. <laughs> I mean, when, when, when my dad had cancer, the doctor said, you know, um, grapes, purple grapes, you should. Oh, is that right? Yeah. 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 So once again, also, also in those vegetables and fruit, you're, you're receiving vitamin C, which is absolutely it's colourless, but it's absolutely another important compound in, in all those fresh produce. So, on a very personal note, Professor Allen, uh, every day I have my porridge and I have blueberries on it. That's oh a, yes, yeah. Oh, is that a, is that a big tick? That's a big to be hundred, <laughs> Alan. Blueberries, blueberries have the reds and the blues on them. It's a it's a super it's a super oh, food. There you go. That's a good way to end, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> so, Andrew, up birds colourblind? Can they t- tell the difference? And do they go for oh, the red uh, ones? Yes, of course. That, that, that's that's the major distributor of the seeds. Birds can definitely oh, yeah. see the colour change. They go for it. The ones on, they attack my grapes at home. So, just when they change colour, so. I hear the sounds of country music, Professor Allen, so I might leave you there, but thank you very much for joining us. That's Andrew Allen there uh, on, yeah, I'm going to go back and buy some berries this afternoon, uh, taking you out with John Denver, Alexia Russell, Chris Clark. Thank you so much for being with me on the panel today. I'm Wallace Chapman, back tomorrow at 3.45. Lisa Owen and Checkpoint is next. Country road.